I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Azo. This is for my listeners with a vagina. Ever felt off balance down there? Introducing Azo Vaginal Health Products. Azo Complete Feminine Balance helps restore the balance of good bacteria. And if you want protection from yeast and urinary tract issues, try Azo Dual Protection. Save 20% with the promo code PODCAST at azoproducts.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so thrilled to be joined today by Jennifer Wright. She's the author of several pop history books, including It Ended Badly and Get Well Soon, which was the winner of Audible's Best History Book of 2017. She lives in L.A. with her husband, fellow writer Daniel Kibblesmith. Hi, Daniel. And their daughter. Her latest book is called Madame Restelle. The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Old New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless, and Infamous Abortionist. Jen, it's lovely to see you. It is so good to see you. This will always be timely, huh? Yeah, it will. I definitely didn't think it would be this timely. I started working on it about three years ago when were bad, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive. Oh, God. So they were not this bad. But no, I, I'm starting to feel like a horrible Cassandra with my books. Get well soon. How society responds to the outbreaks of pandemics. And I wrote it in 2017. So <laughs> look, in retrospect, I went too far unleashing COVID for viral marketing. But it did work. This then begs the question, and usually I ask this at the end or not at all, what are you working on now? Oh, God, I don't know. Well, I, I wanted to give myself a little mental break and concentrate on Good. something. 
pleasant. So the next book is hopefully going to be about the history of parties and how they evolve to reinforce gender roles in the 20th century. That sounds amazing. I hope it's interesting. And I also hope the publishers buy it. So we should find out next week. Will there be recipes? There might be. Okay. Okay. I love this. All right. Let's go back and talk about Madame Ristel. How did you first hear, when did you first hear her name? Like, what was your path to writing this book? I was writing a lot about abortion for Harper's Bazaar for a while during the Trump administration. And uh, I became interested in what America's history with abortion was, when this became legal, and more importantly, when it became illegal in America. And when you go back to the mid-1800s, when abortion went from being this very common misdemeanor that was punished yeah. fine to something that by 1873, after the Comstock laws, was literally unspeakable. You could not share any information about abortion or birth control. You cannot read newspapers from that period without coming across mention of Madame Rostel, who is just such an incredibly famous figure if he for a while in the newspapers it felt like if anybody wrote anything about birth control madame Ristel was responding the next day she would have been very active on twitter one of my favorite lines from the book because I, I can certainly imagine she she's got a response for everything <laughs> he would have loved fighting with people on twitter so it would have saved her so much time she would not have to read the newspapers every day to pen scathing editorials about moralists from the times she wouldn't have but, to pay for the advertising either exactly. oh she was paying a fortune for the advertising but one of my favorite parts from the book is when somebody cancels their advertising, I think in the Herald and the editor and they felt that they weren't being respectfully served by the Herald. And the editor wrote back saying like losing somebody under these circumstances is like losing my kindest, wisest friend. I esteem him as much. No, almost as much. Not quite as I do <laughs> Madame Ristel, that beautiful physician. <laughs> Lo love, love, love that. And and. So much of at least the first part of the book very is very much about media and uh, kind of how we love controversy. We will always love controversy. It sells papers. We do. And I think at least at the beginning of her career, Madame Rostel really leaned into that. And other newspaper editors were also leaning into that. Samuel Jenks Smith, who wanted to have this religious family-friendly newspaper, I think was delighted that when he wrote negative things about Madame Ristel, she always wrote back because <laughs> it sold so many more papers that these two were in a very public fight. And I, I think certainly at the beginning, Madame Ristel thought she was on equal footing with those people, that she thought that we were just both banding op around opinions she could not see how much the law and the medical establishment was going to crack down on this within the next 20 or 30 years. And once again, it feels like, oh, here's here's history repeating itself. Remember when we used to talk about abortion as if it was like a a theoretical thing that might not like it, it was just always such a, a fact of life, it seemed for so many years. Remember how we used to talk about how feminism wasn't really necessary anymore? That we, <laughs> yeah, that, that really, really feels ridiculous now. 
But uh, no, I, there were so many parallels through this book. And one of the reasons that people did crack down on abortion was because of the massive surge of Irish immigrants. And later, after the Civil War, the newly freed Black populace and these incredible fears that white Protestant America was going to be overrun. Horatio Storer, uh, probably the leading anti-abortion advocate from this period, talks about how upon women's wombs rests the destiny of this nation and we have to decide if it's going to be populated with our own or with aliens. And it's so, like, hey, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> it's it's exactly the same thing. It's the same thing you see with, do you remember the Buffalo mass shooter talking about how yeah. we have to fight yes. A lot of that fear of replacement is very much alive and well today. Ugh. When it comes to hiring, you need to trust your gut. But what if you could give your gut some help? When you want to find top talent fast, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit Indeed.com slash Maris to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application. Pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire, you need indeed. And it's so interesting too, before you even really get into Madame Ristel's time period. So I studied restoration drama <gasps> in college and that was smutty. It was so fun and smutty and everybody was just having sex the and getting this out all the time. Yeah. Between then and when Madame Ristel started out, the attitudes had changed. But then you traced through the book how much... Oh, they changed like crazy. Yeah. No, when Madame Ristel started out, we talk about how she came from Painswick, where they had this celebration about the great Rod Pan that kind of just evolved into people having sex in the woods. So Madame Ristel was coming from a town in England that... Had pretty free wheeling attitudes about sex, and I was also reading Jonathan Swift's advice to serving girls because Madame Rochelle started out as a servant, and he talks about how you know you've got to stay away from the eldest son in the household because you'll get a big belly or the clap, but nothing else from him. So at least with the master, you might get some money. These are very forthright attitudes about sex that are, you know, joking and kind of cavalier. 
but I, I'm sure it was not actually fun being a servant and being such a You assault. make that clear. You make oh, that clear. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I don't think we're all having a wacky time. But later on, you have Anthony Comstock, who, who really single-handedly brings about the change towards these attitudes, where I, I think it's important to know that Anthony Comstock was a chronic masturbator. And... Most people, you know, if you just love masturbating, you either decide, well, I'm going to try to stop doing this, or I'm just going to keep doing this and whatever, it'll be fine. And Anthony Comstock decided that he would create a world where there was nothing that arose his lustful impulses. So that turned out to be many, many things from from women wearing low-cut dresses, which he was very upset about, to any kind of commentary on sexual matters, which contained things like distributing information about birth control or abortion or anything to do with reproduction. And it was, I think Anthony Comstock has the blood of thousands of women on his hands. I, one of the most harrowing things I read about it was after Madame Ristel's time about Margaret Sanger's early career. She was working as a nurse and one of the women who had just had a baby, the doctor told her, if you have any more children, you will die. And the woman said, well, how my husband isn't going to stop having sex with me. How do I not have more children? And the doctor just wagged his finger at her in a jovial way and then walked away. And the next year, Madam went back and delivered another child for that woman and the woman died. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's bad. It's It's bad to ban all information about reproductive matters, which, again, feels like something that we're doing. We're just seeing such a high of book banning. And the rhetoric in the 1870s was the same. It was about, like, we don't want our youth to be corrupted. These are things... We're just that... protecting the children in the classroom. We're not saying everybody shouldn't read this, but... Oh, exactly. Bad. Yeah, yeah. The whole rhetoric was about, like, what if this falls into the hands of young people? You don't want that. It'll promote prom promiscuity. And, oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So here we are again. Here we are again. So let's talk a little bit about the circumstances in which Madame Ristel was born. And, and she, she comes to New York City in this time that feels very cinematic in a bad way, like, Everything was filthy, Gangs of New York style. And one of the things that you make very clear is that in that time period in particular, women and children were dying like crazy. It wasn't a big deal. It was a very big deal, obviously, but it was... It was it less was of a big considered deal. considered a big deal at the time. Yes. Yes. No, obviously it was bad, but there was incredible poverty we were seeing a massive shift in america where america went from being primarily rural and a lot of people lived on farms to a lot of people flocking to these new urban centers and a lot of those people included women who could get work in factories who the book talks about how like they don't want to end up like their poor worn out mothers on the farms they don't want to have 12 children and die on a farm and I, I think something I hear a lot from like very well-meaning liberal friends is, 
you know, my dream is just to take like 10 friends and we're going to start our own farm and it's going to be so great. <laughs> share the work. And like farming is fucking terrible. It's yeah. really, really, really hard. You will pass out in the sun if you are trying to farm things by hand in the middle of summer. So a lot of people did find that and they realized that in many ways, life in a city can be a lot easier than life on a farm. So Americans were flocking to cities with the new mechanization of many, many things. And a lot of those people were women, but that meant that women were being paid almost nothing. So women were working 16-hour days in a factory. You were making a few dollars a week at most. There probably would not be enough money to get your children childcare. So if you had a child and you were working in a factory, women were resorting to really desperate measures. Some uh, there, There's one horrifying report of a woman who left her child alone with her three-year-old and thought maybe the toddler could care for the younger one while she went to work. And when she came home, the toddler told her that the baby had been crying, but he stopped him. And she found out that the way she stopped him was beating him over the head with a hammer. So that was one horrible case. Another another horrifying thing that a lot of women ended up doing was drugging their children with laudanum because that will make your children essentially sleep all day. The thing is, you can't drug babies with opiates and have them come out well. Like, it's it's very understandable that that is something women did. But by the 1860s, people were talking about how laudanum is the poor child's nurse. And the results are terrible. Children keep dying. So other women would put their babies into the care of baby farmers who would pay for them, but one of the big problems was that they didn't have formula. So if these children were not being nursed, they weren't really getting nutrients. They were getting something called pap, which is kind of bread mashed up with milk, and they'd be getting it in an unsanitized bottle. So the death rate was incredibly high just from that. Unless you were wealthy, and even if you were wealthy, it was really hard to keep kids alive during this period. Yeah, I mean, and and you talk a, a good deal about Madame Rostel's success rate in in keeping her patients alive and not making grave errors. And and one of the the things that we have to remember, of course, is that germ theory just didn't wasn't getting around. No, I know I talk about Ignaz Semmelweis a little bit in the book, who really, really should have been listened to at the time. Ignaz Semmelweis worked in a hospital where there was one clinic for women giving birth that was run by the doctors and one that was run by midwives. And very few patients died when they were in the care of the midwives. And so many patients died when they were in the care of the doctors that women would give birth in the street or in their carriages rather than go into the clinic with the doctors. They might go in afterwards because you could recuperate there, but they weren't letting the doctors touch them when they were actually giving birth. And Semmelweis realized that is because the doctors weren't washing their hands. They were going from looking at corpses and figuring out what was going on with the corpse to plunging their hands directly into a woman's birth canal to extricate her child and giving women terrible infections that led to them dying as a result. So Ignaz Semmelweis got people to wash their hands and the birth rates almost immediately dropped to be on par with the midwives. 
And then he was overruled. And one of the quotes about that is doctors are, are gentlemen and gentlemen have clean hands. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so the other doctors rejected this theory. And Semmelweis died after being beaten to death in a mental institution. Probably syphilis, like not because he was so <laughs> sad about this, but he did not have a happy end. Oh, that's sad. And, and you, 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 I mean, lots of sad things here. You remind us that doctors did not have an esteemed pedigree at this time. No. One of the interesting things is that Madame Restel was born Antrow in England. She makes up this French persona for herself. Probably first because French people are seen as being very sophisticated when it comes to sexual matters. But one of the other factors in that is that there was incredible medical innovation going on in Paris during this period. Among physicians, it was known as the Paris period. So the idea that Madame Restel was from France and would have trained in Paris, and she made up a grandmother who was like a famous physician in Paris would have granted her a certain amount of prestige. And one of the things that was going on during this period is if you look before the 1800s, a lot of doctors are just going to have been apprentices. So your father might be the town doctor and you would learn from him. And maybe you'd be a little bit better than your father or a little bit worse, but you'd basically know what he knew. But as travel got a little easier, people started going off to Europe and they started walking the halls of the hospitals and learning from European physicians. And uh, I, I'm all for that, but this was reserved for the very wealthy, for people who could say, I'm going to study abroad for a year and I'm going to learn things in a hospital in Paris. And uh, Americans started saying, well, like, we can do that. We'll just open a lot of lecture halls and <laughs> we'll send out advertisements and you can take a six months course and then you're a physician. Now, at these courses, they would basically just have a lecture hall and a bag of bones. And <laughs> a lot of people would not show up for all the classes. And if you paid for the classes, you passed. Uh, you certainly would not see a pregnant woman because this was a time when doctors were told to avert their eyes from female patients. So you could feel what was going on with your hands, but you weren't supposed to look at her. So obviously, this is one of the things that gave midwives a huge advantage because <laughs> Madame Russell, if nothing else, had given birth herself. She kind of knew what was normal in the birthing experience, what wasn't. She had other women to talk to. It's not surprising that a lot of the midwives and abortionists were mostly women. But these new lecture halls and this very informal medical certification meant that you suddenly had this huge surplus of young men who had told, been told, okay, you're going to change your life. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to make so much money. This is great. And now there are too many doctors. So some reports say that there are four times as many as any town needs. And they were not making any money. And people like Madame Ristel were so rich. They were making so much money. So you had these male doctors who knew very little about female reproduction, who suddenly had to find a new source of business. And that is one of the reasons why abortion becomes illegal as 
the AMA, first of all, tries to establish better certification around doctors, but also tries to edge women out of this profession. And one of the ways that they can do that is by saying midwives are abortionists and abortion is wrong now. We all agree that abortion is very bad. And if you go to a midwife instead of a doctor, you're going to a very bad person. Now, you're going to a very bad person who has a much better success rate at keeping <laughs> baby alive than doctors do during this period. But that is one of the reasons for the push against doctors or, as Madame Restell referred to herself, female physicians from the period. Mm. And and I love how you handle, you know, Madame Restell is for sure the heroine of this book, but you are very clear about her flaws. And some of her flaws are so fun to read about because she just... She was so petty and she so loved petty. money. She loved money so much. She loved money so much. And one of the things that really delighted me about reading news reports from this period, Madame Estelle is constantly buying clothes and diamonds and mansions and amazing horses and big carriages and flaunting her wealth at every opportunity. And I thought all the newspapers would read like, this is so new money. She's so trashy. This is so gross. And they don't. They're all like... We agree abortion is bad, but this is the best house we've ever seen. No, no, perfect mansion, gorgeous, so jealous of that mansion. I, and please take us back and tell us why she built her home on Fifth Avenue in Midtown. Uh, one of Madame Restell's greatest acts of pettiness, the Archbishop in New York had criticized her during one of his sermons. And we don't know exactly what he said. And I tried so hard to find it and I couldn't. <laughs> it crazy. But we know that he criticized her. And in response, he had wanted to buy a plot of land for a house across the street where from where St. Patrick's Cathedral was being erected. And Madame Restell outbid him by hundreds of thousands of dollars, so much that they could not possibly compete. And then she built this apparently gorgeous mansion on it, where she continued to perform abortions in the basement and see patients. It was locally known as Madame Restell's Home for Lost Children. <laughs> And and yeah, she she clearly she had a lot of money, which is good because she had to pay a lot of bribes. She did have to pay a lot of bribes. Yeah, she was always bribing male politicians. She sent everybody gold watches. And and yet, not more than you know. I, I think what four or five times at least in, in the space of the book. She is in prison. Yes, she is. The most memorable one is. Uh, probably her year at Blackwell's, where she's imprisoned. And being imprisoned at Blackwell's was really scary. There are reports of people doing things like committing suicide before they go there. Um, it's also, they had a mental asylum on Blackwell's. So if you've read Nellie Bly's yep. reports about, yeah, then, then you know it was a very bad place to be. And Madame Restell just kind of immediately took it off. She made three of the other prisoners her servants. They brought in a feather bed and lamps for her to sleep with. She explained that she couldn't do 
any of the sewing work that the other prisoners were doing, so she was exempt from it. Madame Ristel had come to New York and worked as a seamstress. She almost certainly could have, like, sewn rings around everybody else in the prison. She was visited daily by her husband. She took over the warden's office. The warden's wife started making her all her meals. And one of the craziest things is that it doesn't seem like she bribed people. We know that she bribed some of the boatmen to and from the island because she wanted fresh peaches. So she she was paying for peaches, but it kind of seemed like in her Madame Restelle way, she just breezed into Blackwell's and told the warden, this is how things are going to work. <laughs> I will be needing your office. Absolutely. And, and, and so one of the, I, not to spoil anything, but towards the end of her life whenever they that may be we're kind of seeing how money should is is the great equalizer in new york city and the rest of america and yet until it's not until until it's not not. i think madame ristel had this idea that many women still have of like if i'm rich enough i'll be fine this won't affect me because i'll have enough money i i know in my own family, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, the first thing was like, this is okay. We have enough money. We could fly anywhere in Europe. It, it'll be fine. And money will not save you. Money will not protect you. Madame Ristel thought it would protect her because she would simply be able to buy everybody off. And then Anthony Comstock came along. He was supported by other very, very wealthy people of the period. And... Suddenly, there is a crackdown on everything, and and Madame Ristel is in no way exempt from that. So I think whatever Madame Ristel's end of life is, it has to do with her waking up and realizing like money isn't going to make a difference anymore. She cannot continue to live the way she's living in America. And the, the a, a great side note, which I I had no idea about. Towards the middle of the Gilded Age, she also she, she also building apartment buildings. She is the reason why people now live in the Osborne. It's what it's one of the reasons she was not okay. the person to do this in New York, but she was very very early, and uh, she did build what was considered one of the nicest apartment buildings of the period that had just a beautiful layout. I would kill to live in such a nice apartment building now. And it was at a time when it was getting harder and harder to do abortions. Madame Ristel had to, she was not writing funny editorials in the newspapers anymore. She was running very brief advertisements saying that she was a physician who had been practicing for 40 years. But she kind of tried to launch this second career. And one of the reasons was that nobody would buy a house that was next to her so uh, she had bought up a huge amount of land and she built her mansion on it and now she had this leftover land and she couldn't really sell it but she was in an incredibly fashionable area and she realized like okay I can't get one super rich family to be my neighbors but I can build an apartment building and you can get five or six families who will move into an apartment building 
of very luxurious high-end apartments who want to live in this newly fashionable area of New York that is very near Central Park, which is in the process of becoming Central Park. And um, and she was able to do that. So she was able to build a beautiful apartment building, sell off the apartments for a good amount of money, and all the credit for it goes to her husband. Uh, and it's so clear that Madame Ristel kind of handled this whole project every step of the way. And it got finished around the time her husband died. And her husband's obituary, people are so nice to her husband. And... <laughs> I'm sorry, like, Madame Ristel's husband's main deal was just working for Madame Ristel. I don't know why he... Well, we do know why he got such a pass, because he was a man who got to be rich in America, and we think that's cool. But the obituaries for her husband are like, he was a real estate genius. Like, he figured out that you can build an apartment building into the work. And no, Madame Ristel built that apartment building. She used her own money. She, she did that. But that... I think might have also felt like a wake-up call of like, there is no second act. You can't be a woman who made a fortune being an abortionist and then just say, okay, I'm going to branch out into a different legitimate trade like real estate. Bless her for trying. I, I I should ask you about books soon, but before we get there, I, I do want to talk about the epilogue a little bit because I, I don't think New York's worst story, really. Um, oh. I've only seen the, the Instagram photos are just constantly delightful it's the best person in the world she's so cool she's just so cool <laughs> so nice we got so lucky i know i hope everybody feels that way about their child but she is such a lovely happy little toddler who helps me make pancakes and is just just the biggest joy to be around and and bringing her into the world was more difficult than you the most embarrassing thing i can tell you about giving birth is that i well first of all it was very hard for for me and my husband to get pregnant so we tried for years we did ivf and we started trying when i was 31 i thought by new york standards like we're doing That's this young. exactly the right time like we're married we have a buddy this will be perfect and then we found out that because of some medical issues I had, it was going to be very, very, very hard for me to get pregnant and have a child. And we got really lucky. After three tries, our IVF worked. Well, we were both incredibly happy. The pregnancy was pretty easy. Like, I never had terrible morning sickness. She developed, like, totally normally. We were all really happy. And then I was a week late and they had to induce. And one of the things that they tell you, if you have not been through the process, that just means you get hooked up to a machine that starts your contractions. They give you a little drip. It starts your body contracting. They tell you to take an epidural because the contractions can be really strong if you're induced. And it's like, okay, great. I was kind of on the fence about whether or not I was doing an epidural, but People I know who've had epidurals, you know, definitely pregnancy is a lot easier than otherwise. We should bring the Scrabble board along in case we get bored. Because, oh, you know, no. it'll, it'll take like a full day. And from what I hear, like, as long as you have an epidural, you're fine. The epidural did not work. It felt like I was being physically torn apart from the inside. And I kept throwing up so much that they got worried about me being dehydrated and gave me anti-nausea drugs, which I also threw up. 
I did not know that much pain existed in the universe. And then I hemorrhaged once I gave birth. And they kept saying that they, the room filled up with doctors really, really fast, which is when my husband got very scared. And they kept trying to estimate how much blood I'd lost. And they kept saying that it was already two liters. And I just kept thinking, like, I carry in two liter bottles of soda all the time. This isn't that big a deal. Just let me hold my beautiful baby. And they had to rush me in and operate on me very quickly because it turns out that the average person only has five to six liters of blood. So it's about three liters. And, you know, they they did incredible work. You know, if you are somebody who is pregnant and is trying to decide whether or not to give birth in a hospital, it is, I, I personally was very happy that the operating room was right there and they did a great job. I didn't have to have a hysterectomy. I got really lucky that way. And then I, I got to, I got to be with my perfect, perfect baby. And it was so, it was so interesting because when it was happening, the only thing I kept asking the doctors was whether or not the baby was okay. Like, was, 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 was my daughter okay? And they just kept telling me that she was fine. She was perfect. And I really did feel like in that moment, like whatever happens to me is going to be fine. Like the baby's okay. This is, this is what matters. But what has come along with that is that I wanted that baby so bad, so bad. What would that be like for someone who did not want a baby? That is torture. A man will never be in a position where he is asked to give up half the blood in his body to keep somebody else alive. I, I think if you say wanted to donate your kidney to someone who needed one, that is a wonderful thing to do. You, you should be praised for that. That is an incredible gift you are giving someone. But I do not think the government can come to your house and say, like, we're mandating kidney donations now. <laughs> I don't think the government can come to your house and say we're mandating, like, a once-yearly blood donation, despite the fact that my life was saved because people donate blood. And they were able to give me a blood transfusion very, very quickly. So uh, those are all things that I think uh, just reinforce my sense that... Uh, you cannot mandate that people give birth. People, and I think some of this is television. I think my idea of giving birth was like, well, my biggest worry is like, I'll scream at the doctors when I'm actively pushing. And for me, that is not what birth was like. And I think we downplay how dangerous it still is and how scary it still is. And look, I, I came out of it fine. I have friends who have had terrible postpartum depression afterwards or postpartum psychosis. Lucy Nisley wrote a wonderful book called Kid Gloves about untreated preeclampsia that caused her to go into a coma after giving birth. So we don't really talk about how scary and life-changing the act of giving birth is. And I think often... I look at some of the anti-abortion marches and I see like these jolly-faced 15-year-old boys and oh you don't know yet like you you have not been there you have not been in the room watching your wife lead out on an operating table it is it is so much scarier than we are led to believe in America what a nice thing to actually want to have a child. 
And then oh, it's were- wonderful. Oh, and and it's everything I ever dreamed it could be. But now I have this daughter who's going to grow up in an mm-hmm. age where I think in many parts of the country, she will be a second class citizen where while no man will ever be told he has to donate blood to keep somebody else alive, she could very easily be told that she has to risk her health and her body and her future to keep what is really a theoretical person alive. And that is horrifying to me. That is horrifying. Before we go, will you please recommend some books for us? Ooh, yes. Well, one of the ones that I just loved kind of on the topic of parenthood was All Our Missing Hearts by Celeste, which is a speculative fiction about a future where America has gone through an economic crisis that is being blamed on people of Asian descent and how the government can take their children away and put them with more patriotic families, by which they mean white families. And I think it really taps into how child separation has also been used as a tool by many governments throughout history in order to force compliance from citizens, especially minorities. So uh, really, really love that one. If you're looking for something really fun, I just read The Golden Spoon by Jessica Maxwell. It is a murder mystery set at a great British baking show. Ooh. So much fun. It's so much fun. It's all about cakes and murder. One of my favorite old mysteries is called Who is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe? And I I got those vibes from it. So it's really fun if you've ever watched The Great British Baking Show and you enjoy murder mysteries. It's a blast. Oh, and Alexandra Petrie's U.S. History is coming out. She is one of my all-time favorite humorists. She writes an amazing humor column for The Washington Post. And she has now written a very funny collection of satirical documents about United States history. So if you enjoyed this book and enjoy books with jokes in them, then that one might be perfect. I love that. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Madame Ristel, check it out. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.